Chapters nineteen through twenty two of the Right Away by Gilbert Parker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter nineteen. The Sign from Heaven. The agitation and curiosity possessing Rosalie all day held her in the evening when the wooden shutters of the tailor's shop were closed and only a flickering light showed through the cracks. She was restless and uneasy during supper and gave more than one unmeaning response to the remarks of her crippled father, who, drawn up for supper in his wheelchair, was more than usually inclined to gossip. Damas Vanterell's mind was stirred concerning the loss of the Iron Cross. The threat made by Filian Lacasse and his companions troubled him. The one person beside the curé, Joe Portugais and Louis Trudel, to whom Monsieur talked much, was the postmaster, who sometimes met him of an evening as he was taking the air. More than once he had walked behind the wheelchair and pushed it some distance, making the little crippled man gossip of village matters. As the two sat at supper the postmaster was inclined to take a serious view of Monsieur's position. He railed at Filian Lacasse. He called the suspicious habitants clodhoppers who didn't know any better, which was a tribute to his own superior birth, and at last, carried away by a feverish curiosity, he suggested that Rosalie should go and look through the cracks in the shutters of the tailor shop and find out what was going on within. This was indignantly rejected by Rosalie, but the more she thought, the more uneasy she became. She ceased to reply to her father's remarks and he at last relapsed into gloom and said that he was tired and would go to bed. Thereupon she wheeled him inside his bedroom, bade him good-night, and left him to his moodiness, which, however, was soon absorbed in a deep sleep, for the mind of the little grey postmaster could no more hold trouble or thought than a sieve. Left alone, Rosalie began to be tortured. What were they doing in the house opposite? Go and look through the windows? but she had never spied on people in her life. Yet would it be spying? Would it not be pardonable? In the interest of the man who had been attacked in the morning by the tailor, who had been threatened by the saddler, and concerning whom she had seen a signal pass between old Louis and Philly and Lacasse, would it not be a humane thing to do? It might be foolish and feminine to be anxious, but did she not mean well, and was it not therefore honorable? The mystery inflamed her imagination. Charlie's passiveness, when he was assaulted by old Lewis and afterwards threatened by the saddler, seemed to her indifference to any sort of danger, the courage of the hopeless life, maybe. Instantly her heart overflowed with sympathy. Monsieur was not a Catholic, perhaps? Well, so much the more he should be befriended, for he was so much the more alone and helpless. If a man was born a Protestant or English, he could not help it, and should not be punished in this world for it, since he was sure to be punished in the next. Her mind became more and more excited. The post-office had been long since closed, and her father was asleep. She could hear him snoring. It was ten o'clock, and there was still a light in the tailor's shop. Usually the light went out before nine o'clock. She went to the post-office door and looked out. The streets were empty, and there was not a light burning anywhere save in the house of the notary. Down towards the river a sleigh was making its way over the thin snow of spring and screeching on the stones. Some late revellers moving homewards from the Troy Couronne were roaring at the top of their voices with the habited chansom, 
Le petit Roger Bautomme. For I am Roger Bautomme. J, J, J. With drink I am full and with joy content. J, J, Gem. The chanson died away as she stood there, and still the light was burning in the shop opposite. A thought suddenly came to her. She would go over and see if the old housekeeper, Margot Patry, had gone to bed. Here was the solution to the problem, the satisfaction of modesty and propriety. She crossed the street quickly, hurried round the corner of the house, and was passing the side window of the shop when a crack in the shutters caught her eye. She heard something fall on the floor within. Could it be that the tailor and Mazur were working at so late an hour? She had an irresistible impulse and glued her eye to the crack but presently she started back with a smothered cry. There by the great fireplace stood Louis Trudel, picking up a red-hot cross with a pair of pincers. Grasping the iron firmly just below the arms of the cross, the tailor held it up again. He looked at it with a wild triumph, yet with a malignancy little in keeping with the object held, the holy relic he had stolen from the door of the parish church. The girl gave a low cry of dismay. She saw old Louis advance stealthily towards the door of the shop leading into the house. In bewilderment she stood still for an instant, then with a sudden impulse she ran to the kitchen door and tried it softly. It was not locked. She opened it, entered quickly, and found old Margot standing in the middle of the room in her nightdress. "'Oh, Rosalie, Rosalie!' cried the old woman. "'Something's going to happen. Monsieur Trudel has been queer all evening. I peeped in the keyhole of the shop just now and—' "'Yes, yes, I've seen too. Come,' said Rosalie, and going quickly to the door, opened it, and passed through to another room. Here she opened another door, leading into the hall between the shop and the house. Entering the hall she saw a glimmer of light above. It was the reddish glow of the iron cross held by old Louis. She crept softly up the stone steps. She heard a door open very quietly. She hurried now and came to a landing. She saw the door of Charlie's room open, all the village knew what room he slept in, and the moonlight was streaming in at the window. She saw the sleeping man on the bed and the tailor standing over him. Charlie was lying with one arm thrown above his head, the other lay over the side of the bed. As she rushed forward divining old Louis' purpose, the fiery cross descended and a voice cried, "'Show me a sign from heaven, tailor-man!' This voice was drowned by that of another which gasping with agony out of a deep sleep as the body sprang upright cried god oh god rosalie's hand grasped old lewis arm too late the tailor sprang back with a horrible laugh striking her aside and rushed out to the landing oh monsieur monsieur cried rosalie and snatching a scarf from her bosom thrust it in upon the excoriated breast as charlie hardly realizing what had happened choked back moans of pain what did he do he gasped the iron cross from the church door she answered a minute a minute monsieur she rushed out upon the landing in time to see the tailor stumble on the stairs and fall head forwards to the bottom at the feet of margot patrie rosalie paid no heed to the fallen man oil flour quick she cried quick quick she stepped over the body of the tailor snatched at margot's arm and dragged her into the kitchen quick oil and flour the old woman showed her where they were, moaning and whining. "'He tried to kill Monsieur,' cried Rosalie. "'Burned him on the breast with a holy cross.' With oil and flour she hurried back, over the body of the tailor, up the stairs, 
and into Charlie's room. Charlie was now out of bed and half-dressed, though choking with pain, and preserving consciousness only by a great effort. "'Good mademoiselle,' he said. She took the scarf off gently, soaked it in oil, and splashed it with flour, and laid it quickly back on the burnt flesh. Margot came staggering into the room. "'I cannot rouse him. He is dead,' she whimpered. He—' Charlie swayed forward towards the woman, recovered himself, and said, "'Now, not a word of what he did to me, remember. Not one word, or you will go to jail with him. If you keep quiet, I'll say nothing. He didn't know what he was doing.' He turned to Rosalie. "'Not a word of this, please,' he moaned. "'Hide the cross.' He moved towards the door. Rosalie saw his purpose, and ran out ahead of him and down the stairs to where the tailor lay prone on his face, one hand still holding the pincers. The little iron cross lay in a dark corner. Stooping, she lifted up the tailor's head, then felt his heart. "'He is not dead,' she cried. "'Quick, Margot, some water,' she added to the whimpering woman. Margot tottered away and came again presently with the water. "'I will go for someone to help,' Rosalie said, rising to her feet, as she saw Charlie come slowly down the staircase, his face white with misery. She ran and took his arm to help him down. "'No, no, dear mademoiselle,' he said. "'I shall be all right presently. You must get help to carry him upstairs. Bring the notary. He and I can carry him up.' "'You, monsieur? You? It would kill you. You are terribly hurt.' I must help to carry him, else people will be asking questions, he answered painfully. He is going to die. It must not be known, you understand? His eyes searched the floor until they found the cross. Rosalie picked it up with the pincers. It must not be known what he did to me, Charlie said to the muttering and weeping old woman. He caught her shoulder with his hand, for she seemed scarcely to heed. She nodded. Yes, yes, monsieur, I will never speak. Rosalie was standing in the door. "'Go quickly, mademoiselle,' he said. She disappeared with the iron cross, and flying across the street, thrust it inside the post-office, then ran to the house of the notary. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 The Return of the Tailor Twenty minutes later the tailor was lying in his bed, breathing, but still unconscious, the notary monsieur and the doctor of the next parish, who by chance was in Chaudier, beside him. Charlie's face was drawn and haggard with pain, for he had helped to carry old Louis to bed, though every motion of his arms gave him untold agony. In the doorway stood Rosalie and Margot Patrie. "'Will he live?' asked the notary. The doctor shook his head. "'A few hours, perhaps. He fell downstairs?' Charlie nodded. There was silence for some time, as the doctor went on with his ministrations, and the notary sat drumming his fingers on the little table beside the bed. The two women stole away to the kitchen, where Rosalie again pressed secrecy on Margot. In the interest of the cause she had even threatened Margot with a charge of complicity. She had heard the phrase, accessory before the fact, and she used it now with good effect. Then she took some fresh flour and oil, and thrust them inside the bedroom door where Charlie now sat, clinching his hands, and fighting down the pain. Careful as ever of his personal appearance, however, he had brushed every speck of flour from his clothes and buttoned his coat up to the neck. Nearly an hour passed, and then the curé appeared. When he entered the sick man's room, Charlie followed, and again Rosalie and old Margot came and stood within the doorway. "'Peace be to this house,' said the curé. 
he had a few minutes of whispered conversation with the doctor and then turned to charlie he fell downstairs monsieur you saw him fall i was in my room i heard him fall cure had he been ill during the day he appeared to be feeble and he seemed moody more than usual monsieur the cure had heard of the incident of the morning when Philian lacasse accused charlie of stealing the cross rather more than usual monsieur the cure turned towards the door you mademoiselle rosalie how came you to know i was in the kitchen with margot who was not well the cure looked at margot who tearfully nodded i was ill she said and rosalie was here with me she helped m'sieu and me rosalie is a good girl and kind to me she whimpered the cure seemed satisfied and after looking at the sick man for a minute he came close to charlie i am deeply pained at what happened to-day he said courteously i know you have had nothing to do with the beloved little cross the notary tried to draw near and listen but the cure's look held him back the doctor was busy with his patient you are only just monsieur said charlie in response wishing that these kind eyes were fixed anywhere than on his face all at once the curate laid a hand upon his arm you are ill he said anxiously you look very ill indeed see vaudry he added to the doctor you have another patient here the friendly oleaginous doctor came over and peered into charlie's face ill sure enough he said look at this sweat he pointed to the drops of perspiration on charlie's forehead where do you suffer severe pains all through my body charlie answered simply for it seemed easier to tell the truth as near as might be i must look to you said the doctor go and lie down and i will come to you charlie bowed but did not move just then two things drew the attention of all the tailor showed returning consciousness and there was noise of many voices outside the house and the tramping of feet below stairs go and tell them no one must come up said the doctor to the notary and the cure made ready to say the last offices for the dying presently the noise below stairs diminished and the priest's voice rose in the office vibrating and touching the two women sank to their knees the doctor followed his eyes still fixed on the dying man presently however charlie did the same for something penetrating and reasonable in the devotion touched him all at once louis trudel opened his eyes staring round with acute excitement his eyes fell on the cure then upon charlie stop stop monsieur le cure he cried there's other work to do he gasped and was convulsed but the pallor of his face was alive with fire from the distempered eyes he snatched from his breast the paper charlie had neglected to burn he thrust it into the cure's hand see see he croaked he is an infidel black infidel from hell his voice rose in a kind of shriek piercing to every corner of the house he pointed at charlie with shaking finger he wrote it there on that paper he doesn't believe in god his strength failed him his hand clutched tremblingly at the air he laughed a dry cackling laugh and his mouth opened twice or thrice to speak but gasping breaths only came forth with a last effort however as the priest shocked stretched out his hand and said have done have done trudel he cried in a voice that quavered shrilly he asked tailor man sign from heaven look look he pointed wildly at charlie i gave him i gave him sign of but that was the end with a shudder the body collapsed in a formless heap 
and the tailor-man was gone to tell of the work he had done for his faith on earth. End of chapter 20 Chapter 21 The Curé Has an Inspiration White and malicious faces peered through the doorway. There was an ugly murmur coming up the staircase. Many habitants had heard Louis Trudel's last words, and had passed them on with vehement exaggeration. Chaudier had been touched in its most superstitious corner. Protestantism was a sin, but atheism was a crime against humanity. The Protestant might be the victim of a mistake, but the atheist was the deliberate son of darkness, the source of fearful dangers. An atheist in their midst was like a scorpion in a flower-bed. No one could tell when and where it would sting. Rough misdemeanors among them had been many, there had once been a murder in the parish, but the undefined horrors of infidelity were more shameful than crimes the eye could see. To the minds of these excited people the tailor-man's death was due to the infidel before them. They were ready to do all that might become a Catholic intent to avenge the profaned honor of the church and the faith. Bodily harm was the natural form for their passion to take. "'Bring him out! Let us have him!' they cried with fierce gestures, to which Rosalie Evanterel turned a pained, indignant face. As the curé stood with the paper in his hand, his face set and bitter, Rosalie made a step forward. She meant to tell the truth about Louis Trudel, and show how good this man was who stood charged with an imaginary crime. But she met the warning eye of the man himself. Calm and resolute, she saw the suffering in the face, endured with what composure and she felt instantly that she must obey him, and that, who could tell, his plan might be the best in the end. She looked at the curé anxiously. What would he say and do? In the curé's heart and mind a great struggle was going on. All his inherent prejudice, the hereditary predisposition of sentries, the ingrained hatred of atheism were alive in him, hardening his mind against the man before him. His first impulse was to let Charlie take his fate at the hands of the people of Chaudiere, whatever it might be. But as he looked at the man, as he recalled their first meeting, and remembered the simple quiet life he had lived among them, charitable and unselfish, the barriers of creed and habit fell down, and tears unbidden rushed into his eyes. The curé had, all at once, the one great inspiration of his life its one beautiful and supreme imagining, for thus he reasoned swiftly. Here he was, a priest who had shepherded a flock of the faithful passed on to him by another priest before him, who again had received from a guardian of the fold, a family of faithful Catholics whose thoughts never strayed into forbidden realms. He had done no more than keep them faithful and prevent them from wandering, counseling, admonishing, baptizing, and burying giving in marriage and blessing, sending them on their last great journey with the cachet of holy church upon them. But never once, never in all his life, had he brought a lost soul into the fold. If he died to-night he could not say to St. Peter when he arrived at heaven's gates, See, I have saved a soul. Before the throne he could not say to him who cried, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He could not say, lord by thy grace i found this soul in the wilderness in the dark and the loneliness having no god to worship denial and rebellion in his heart and behold i took him to my breast 
and taught him in thy name, and led him home to thy haven, the church. Thus it was that the curé dreamed a dream. He would set his life to saving this lost soul. He would rescue him from the outer darkness. His face suffused, he handed the paper in his hand back to the man who had written the words upon it. Then he lifted his hand against the people at the door and the loud murmuring behind them. "'Peace, peace,' he said, as though from the altar. "'Leave this room of death, I command you. Go at once to your homes. This man,' he pointed to Charlie, "'is my friend. Who seeks to harm him would harm me. Go hence and pray. Pray for yourselves, pray for him and for me, and pray for the troubled soul of Louis Trudel. Go in peace.' Soon afterwards the house was empty, save for the curé, Charlie, old Margot, and the notary. That night Charlie sat in the tailor's bedroom, rigid and calm, though racked with pain, and watched the candles flickering beside the dead body. He was thinking of the curé's last words to the people. "'I wonder, I wonder,' he said, and through his eyeglass he stared at the crucifix that threw a shadow on the dead man's face morning found him there. As dawn crept in he rose to his feet. Whither now? he said, like one in a dream. End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 The Woman Who Saw Up to the moment of her meeting with Charlie, Rosalie Evanturel's life had been governed by habit, which was lightly colored by temperament. Since the eventful hour on Vadrome Mountain, it had become a life of temperament, in which habit was involuntary and mechanical. She did her daily duties with a good heart, but also with a sense superior to the practical action. This grew from day to day, until in the tragical days wherein she had secretly played a great part, she moved as in a dream, but a dream so formal that no one saw any change taking place in her, or associated her with the events happening across the way. She had been compelled to answer many questions, for it was known she was in the tailor's shop when Louis Trudel fell downstairs. But what more was there to tell than that she had run for the notary and sent word to the curé, and that she was present when the tailor died, charging Monsieur with being an infidel? At first she was ill-disposed to answer any questions, but she soon felt that attitude would only do harm. For the first time in her life, she was face to face with moral problems, the beginning of sorrow, of knowledge, and of life. In all secrets there was a kind of guilt, however beautiful or joyful they may be, or for what good end they may be set to serve. Secrecy means evasion, and evasion means a problem to the moral mind. To the primitive mind, with its direct yes and no, there is danger of it becoming a tragical problem ere it is realized that truth is various and diverse. Perhaps even with that Mary who hid the matter in her heart, the exquisite tragedy of glory of Christendom, there was a delicate feeling of guilt, the guilt of the hidden though lofty and beautiful thing. If secrecy was guilt, then Charlie and Rosalie were bound together by a bond as strong as death. Rosalie held the key to a series of fateful days and doings. In ordinary course they might have known each other for five years and not have come to this sensitive and delicate association. With one great plunge she had sprung into the river of understanding, 
in the moment that she had thrust her scarf into his scorched breast in that little upper room, the work of years had been done. As long as he lived, that mark must remain on Monsieur's breast, the red, smooth scar of a cross. She had seen the sort of shining scar a bad burn makes, and at thought of it she flushed, trembled, and turned her head away as though someone were watching her. Even in the night she flushed and buried her face in the pillow when the thought flashed through her mind, though when she had soaked the scarf in oil and flour and laid it on the angry wound she had not flushed at all, was determined, quiet, and resourceful. That incident had made her from a girl into a woman, from a child of the convent into a child of the world. She no longer thought and felt as she had done before. What she did think or feel could not easily have been set down, for her mind was one tremulous confusion of unusual thoughts. Her heart was beset by new feelings. Her imagination, suddenly finding itself, was trying its wings helplessly. The past was full of wonder and event, the present full of surprises. There was Monsieur established already in Louis Trudel's place, having been granted a lease of the house and shop by the curé on the part of the parish to which the property had been left, receiving also a gift of the furniture and of old Margot, who remained where she had been so many years. She could easily see Charlie at work, pale and suffering still, for the door was generally open in the sweet April weather, with the birds singing and the trees bursting into blossom. Her willful imagination traced the cross upon his breast. It almost seemed as if it were outside upon his clothes, exposed to every eye, a shining thing all fire, not a wound inside, for which old Margot prepared oiled linen now. The parish was as perturbed as her own mind, for the mystery of the stolen cross had never been cleared up, and a few still believed that Monsieur had taken it. They were of those who kept hinting at dark things which would yet be worked upon the infidel in the tailor's shop. These were they to whom the curé's beautiful ambition did not appeal. He had said that if the man were an infidel, then they must pray that he be brought into the fold. But a few were still suspicious, and they said in Rosalie's presence, Where is the little cross? Monsieur knows. He did know. That was the worst of it. The cross was in her possession. Was it not necessary, then, to quiet suspicion for his sake? She had locked the relic away in a cupboard in her bedroom, and she carried the key of it always in her pocket. Every day she went and looked at it as at some ghostly token. To her it was a symbol not of supernatural things, but of life in its new reality to her. It was Monsieur. It was herself. It was their secret. She chafed inwardly that Margot should share a part of that secret. If it were only between their two selves, between Monsieur and herself. If Margot, she paused suddenly, for she was going to say, if Margot would only die. She was not wicked enough to wish that, yet in the past few weeks she had found herself capable of thinking things beyond the bounds of any past experience. She found a solution at last. She would go to-night secretly and nail the cross again on the church door, and so stop the chatter of evil tongues. The moon set very early now, and as every one in Chaudier was supposed to be in bed by ten o'clock, the chances of not being seen were in her favor. She received the final impetus to her resolution 
by a quarrelsome and threatening remark of Joe Portugais to some sharp-tongued gossip in the post-office. She was glad that Joe should defend Monsieur, but she was jealous of his friendship for the tailor. Besides, did there not appear to be a secret between Joe and Monsieur? Was it not possible that Joe knew where Monsieur came from and all about him? Of late, Joe had come in and gone out of the shop oftener than in the past, had even brought her bunches of mosses for her flower-pots, the first budding lilacs, and some maple-sugar made from the trees on Vadrome Mountain. She remembered that when she was a girl at school, years ago, ten years ago, Joe Portugais, then scarcely out of his teens, a cheerful, pleasant, quick-tempered lad, had brought her bunches of the mountain ashberry, that once he had mended the broken runner of her sled, and yet another time had sent her a birch-bark valentine at the convent where it was confiscated by the mother superior. Since those days he had become a dark, morose figure, living apart from men, never going to confession, seldom going to mass, unloving and unlovable. There was only one other person in the parish more unloved. That was the woman called Paulette Dubois, who lived in the little house at the outer gate of the manor. Paulette Dubois had a bad name in the parish so bad that all women shunned her, and few men noticed her. Yet no one could say at the present time she did not live a careful life, justifying, so far as the eye could see, the protection of the Seigneur M. Resignal, a man of queer habits and queer address, a dabbler in physical science, a devout Catholic, and a constant friend of the curé. He it was who, when an effort was made to drive Paulette out of the parish, had said that she should not go unless she wished, that, having been born in Chaudiere, she had a right to live there and die there, and if she had sinned there the parish was in some sense to blame. Though he had no lodge-gates, and though the seigneury was but a great wide low-roofed farmhouse with an observatory and a chimney-piece dating from the time of Louis the Fourteenth, the seigneur gave Paulette Dubois a little hut at his outer gate, which had been theirs since the great Count Frontenac visited Chaudier. Probably Rosalie spoke to Paulette Dubois more often than did anyone else in the parish, but that was because the woman came for little things at the shop, and asked for letters, and every week sent one, to a man living in Montreal. She sent these letters, but not more than once in six months did she get a reply, and she had not had one in a whole year. Yet every week she asked, and Rosalie found it hard to answer her politely, and sometimes showed it. So it was that the two disliked each other without good cause, save that they were separated by a chasm as wide as a sea. The one disliked the other because she must recognize her. The other chaffed because she could be recognized by Rosalie officially only. The late afternoon of the day in which Rosalie decided to nail the cross on the church door again, Paulette arrived to ask for letters at the moment that the office wicket was closed, and Rosalie had answered that it was after office hours and had almost closed the door in her face. As she turned away, Joe Portugais came out of the tailor's shop opposite. He saw Paulette and stood still an instant. She did the same. A strange look passed across the face of each. Then they turned and went in opposite directions. Never in her life had time gone so slowly with Rosalie. She watched the clock. A dozen times she went to the front door and looked out. She tried to read. It was no use. She tried to spin. Her fingers trembled. 
she sorted the letters in the office again and rearranged every letter and parcel and paper in its little pigeonhole then did it all over again she took out again the letter paulette had dropped in the letter-box it was addressed in the name of the man at montreal she looked at it in a kind of awe as she had ever done the letters of this woman who was without the pale they had a sense of mystery an air of forbidden imagination she put the letter back went to the door again and looked out it was now time to go drawing a hood over her head she stepped out into the night there was a little frost though spring was well forward and the smell of the rich earth and the budding trees was sweet to the sense the moon had just set but the stars were shining and here and there patches of snow on the hillside and in the fields added to the light yet it was not bright enough to see far and as rosalie moved down the street she did not notice a figure at a little distance behind walking on the new springing grass by the roadside all was quiet at the tavern there was no light in the notary's house as a rule he sat up late reading and even the fiddle of maximilian cour the baker was silent the cure's windows were dark and the church with its white tin spire stood up sentinel-like above the village rosalie had the fateful cross in her hand as she softly opened the gate of the churchyard and approached the great oak doors taking a screwdriver and some screws from her pocket she felt with a finger for the old screw-holes in the door then she began her work looking fearfully round once or twice at first presently however because the screws were larger than the old ones it became much harder the task called forth more strength and drove all thought of being seen out of her mind for a space at last however she gave the final turn to the handle and every screw was in its place its top level and smooth with the iron of the cross she stopped and looked round again with an uneasy feeling she could see no one hear no one but she began to tremble and overcome she fell on her knees before the door and with fingers on the foot of the little cross prayed passionately for herself for monsieur suddenly she heard footsteps inside the church they were coming towards the doorway nearer and nearer at first she was so struck with terror that she could not move then with a little cry she sprang to her feet rushed to the gate threw it open ran out into the road on wildly towards home she did not stop for at least three hundred yards turning and looking back she saw at the church door a pale round light with another cry she sped on and did not pause till she reached the house then bursting in and locking the door she hurried to her room undressed quickly got into bed without saying her prayers and buried her face in the pillow shivering and overwrought the footsteps she had heard were those of the cure and joe portugais the cure had sent for joe to do some last work upon a little altar to be used the next day for the first time the carpenter and the carver in wood who were responsible for the work had fallen victims to white whiskey on the very last day of their task and had been driven from the church by the cure who then sent for joe rosalie had not seen the light at the shrine as it was on the side of the church farthest from the village their labor finished the two came towards the front door the cure's lantern in his hand opening the door joe heard the sound of footsteps and saw a figure flying down the road as the cure came out abstractedly he glanced sorrowfully toward the place where the little cross was used to be he gave a wondering cry and almost dropped the lantern see si, see si, portugais he said 
our little cross again joe nodded so it seems monsieur he said at that instant he saw hood lying on the ground and as the cure held up the lantern peering at the little cross he hastily picked it up and thrust it inside his coat strange very strange said the cure it must have been done while we were inside it was not there when we entered we entered by the vestry door said joe ah true true responded the cure it comes as it went said joe you can't account for some things the cure turned and looked at joe curiously are you then so superstitious joe nonsense it is the work of human hands very human hands he added sadly there was nothing to show said the cure seeing joe's glance round as you see monsieur le cure well it is a mystery which time no doubt will clear up meanwhile let us be thankful to god said the cure they parted the cure going through a side gate into his own garden joe passing out of the churchyard gate through which rosalie had gone he looked down the road towards the village well said a voice in his ear paulette dubois stood before him it was you then he said with a glowering look what did you want with it what did you want with the hood in your coat there she drew her head back with a spiteful laugh whose do you think it is he said quietly you and the schoolmaster made verses about her once it was rosalie evanterelle he asked with aggravating composure you have the hood look at it you saw her running down the road i saw her come watched her and saw her go she is a thief pretty rosalie thief and postmistress no doubt she takes letters too the ones you wait for and that never come eh his face darkened with rage and hatred i will tell the world she's a thief she sneered who will believe you you will she was hard and fierce and looked him in the eyes squarely you'll give evidence quick enough if i ask you i won't do anything you ask me to nothing if it was to save my life i'll prove her a thief without you she can't deny it if you try i'll he stopped husking and shaking you'll kill me eh you killed him and you didn't hang oh no you wouldn't kill me joe she added quickly in a changed voice you've had enough of that kind of thing if i'd been you i'd rather have hung ah sure she suddenly came close to him do you hate me so bad joe she said anxiously it's eight years do you hate me so bad as then you keep your tongue off rosalie evanterelle he said and turned on his heels she caught his arm we're both bad joe can't we be friends she said eagerly her voice shaking he did not reply don't drive a woman too hard she said between her teeth threats bah he rejoined what do you think i'm made of i'll find that out she said and turning on her heels ran down the road towards the manor house what had rosalie to do with the cross joe said to himself this is her hood he took it out and looked at it it's her hood but what did she want with the cross he hurried on and as he neared the post office he saw the figure of a woman in the road at first he thought it might be rosalie but as he came nearer he saw it was not the woman was muttering and crying she wandered to and fro bewilderingly he came up caught her by the arm and looked into her face it was old margot patry end of chapter twenty two recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com